There is an army of untrained, untapped, undeployed men in the church. Today, our guest on the Noble Man podcast is Chuck Stecker, founder of A Chosen Generation Ministries. Together, we discuss the biggest obstacles in activating this army and how to mobilize them for the kingdom of God. All this and more on this week's episode of the Noble Man podcast. Well, folks, welcome to the Noble Man Podcast. We are spending the first half of this year talking about mentoring and the idea of connecting the generations, of seeing seasoned men invest in younger men. And man, have we got an expert in this field with us today. And uh, so I'm super excited to have Chuck from A Chosen Generation join us today from Colorado. Chuck, welcome to the Noble Man Podcast. Mike, what a privilege and an honor to be with you. I appreciate being on with you and I look forward to what God's going to do with this. Well, I'm excited. Now, listen, I told you guys. Guys, this is this is wheelhouse stuff for Chuck Stecker. Chuck has been, ever since I met him, has been beating on this drum of this idea that we need to see intergenerational ministry take place through the local church. And uh, some of that manifests itself with rites of passage as we would bring young men and young women along into uh, Christian adulthood, Christian manhood, and Christian womanhood. But really key to that, I think, is what are we doing with these older generations? What are what are the folks who are seasoned in the church? What role do they play in that? And so, Chuck, that's really where I want to hang out today is what are you seeing? What are you experiencing? What do you talk about in the local church with trying to mobilize seasoned adults, seasoned men specifically to engage mentoring and discipleship? Well, Mike, that's a great question, and I, uh, I kind of shuddered for a second when you said expert, but we'll let that go. But bottom line is that's such a great question, and let me just kind of kind of give you some of my observations. I, I just finished uh, two weekends down in the Arizona area. I was just in California last weekend prior to Easter, and a lot of the seasoned men, as you call, we refer to as the encore generation, and we've got to break them out of that. So here's what I'm seeing first. They bought into a lie. They've absolutely bought into a lie. And you and I have had this conversation and it resulted in a resource that we talked about that if you passed your baton, take it back. And here's the lie. When you talk to too many of our our seniors, seasoned, encore, they'll say, look, I was told to pass the baton. It's somebody else's turn, right? And that is an absolute lie from Satan. That is not of God. And I try to first break that lie and say, look, let's understand what that term passing the baton means and why it's not valid. So what you're using is a lie. Okay, so we want to live with the truth, not the lie. When a runner and we've taken this modern day relay kind of mentality and said how cute that is. And now it's passing the baton. We're in this relay race. I said, well, that's not what Paul said when he says, I finished the race, you know, kept the faith, finished the race, fought the good fight. You know, we go through all of that. You cannot finish a race that you quit in. If you step off the track before the finish line, you can't finish that race. You're done. You that's quit. Right. So the first thing to understand about passing the baton is one, when you pass the baton, you quit running, you get off the track. And you stay out of the race now. In fact, you know, if you even jog on the track and encourage them, it's called pacing and your team will be disqualified. You, you've got to maintain your place right there and just stand there. You're done. And so that idea of passing the baton where you quit running, get off the, and that idea anyway, I said, you know, if you think about the passing of the baton, uh, it's part of, for me, as you said, you know, I'm be 75 here in a few months. 
the idea that I run on a very clear lane and there's a line that starts when I can pass the baton and there's a line that ends. And if I start before that, I'm disqualified and I pass it after that. I'm going, how silly is that? What have we conveyed to people? So this idea that you're in the best season of your life. So we've got to first, particularly with men, Mike, we've got to break away from this lie that it's time to pass the baton. You've done your part, you know, and so forth. And we've got to check away from retired to refired in a sense. Okay. And say you're in the best season of your life and you don't even realize it. No wonder Satan wants to stop you. Why is this the best season of a man's life, Chuck? Why would you say that this seasoned time is the best season of a man's life? Oh, great question. Mike, I will tell you, I uh, I feel like I am the most effective I've ever been in ministry. I How am old are you, Chuck? Time. I'm 75 this year, Mike, 75. And people say, how can we pray for you, Chuck? By the way, I'll get this out early. Pray for the spirit of Caleb. You know, he uh, right. went into the desert at 40, came out at 80. And then people think, well, everything was peachy keen. It wasn't. For five years, he served Joshua to help the other 11 tribes take their land, battle, fight. And then at 85 is when he said, I'm as strong now as we went into the land. Give me my mountain. That's the yes. of my heart, literally. My I want the high ground. That's it. That's but right. now remember, he still had to fight for five more years from 85 to 90. Take it. So in any event, here's the issue. We are living in a time where men are healthier than we've ever been. They're popping parts in and out of us like Legos. You know, we're, you know, <laughs> no, seriously, man, I, I, I played played three rounds of golf in Arizona. And in the last two years, I've had both shoulders replaced, both rotor cuffs. And I said, let's get on with this thing. Let's party, you know, (laughs) but we have the best expendable time that we've had. Uh, We're in the best position. And frankly, you know, I, I love the idea of the Renaissance man that we're positioned now to touch every generation. Okay. That we've never been before. And I can go through every single generation from a young guy at church in grade school that I just spoke to yesterday and encouraged to a college guy, to a high school guy and couples, you know, I mean, I can take it all the way up to folks in their 70s right now. We have the authority to speak into each one of their lives. Okay. And we've got to use the God-given authority God has given us to, to help them grow and, and to walk with them in the process, Mike. Well, and so I love that, Chuck. I appreciate what you're saying, and I see it in a handful of guys. I encounter a handful of guys who have that Caleb spirit and are getting after it. But the majority of folks in – so I'm Gen X. I'm not a baby boomer. You're a baby boomer. But the majority of folks in the baby boomers and the Gen X, they are either not engaged at all in discipleship or they are still being discipled. There's some recent Barna research they did with the navigators that point this out. And it's just amazing to me that, you know, while they have all of this knowledge, all of this experience, all of this wisdom, they are not plowing it into the soil of the kingdom to see a harvest come out of that late in life. So I, you may have some perspective on what, what the barriers are or what the limitations are. What, what are you seeing and how are you coming against that? Well, let's start with the baby boomers, Mike. Okay, first thing, and and you and I have talked about this, far too many of our contemporaries, mine, and this baby boomer, the reason they're not engaged is because they either feel disqualified or unqualified. And and here's what I mean. Uh, You know, sometimes it's better just to tell the truth, shame the devil, and let's get it out there so we can deal with that. 
far too many baby boomers thought they raised their kids in the church and everything was hunky dory. Everything was great. And now they yeah. see their children aren't in the church and they're not raising their grandchildren in the church. And they're wondering what they, they did wrong. And they're struggling with that. And they're, they're grieving over that. And so when you talk to them about investing in a young, they can, I couldn't even raise my own family. How do you expect me to help anybody else? Right. Sure. Well, some of that positions them better than ever before because right. of the pain they've experienced, the need that they see, but they feel that. Now, here's the second thing with the baby boomers, Mike. If I talk to you about mentors and coaches and I say, so tell me about your coaches and your mentors, right? Those words mean something to you and you can relate. You ask guys my age, say, well, tell me about your coaches. Our response is what sport? Right. That word doesn't have the same meaning that it does there. Now you Good look point. at the Nexers and say they're not investing, right? Well, of course not. They can't reproduce what they don't have, okay? Right. So you and I both know Dan Schaefer. I just saw Dan last week with his bride and taught me this in 1994. My gosh. And it was, you can't teach what you don't know. You can't lead where you won't go, and you only reproduce what you are. All right. Now we're saying Gen Xers, right? They're not doing it. Why would they? Nobody taught them how. They can only reproduce what they didn't see, in a sense, with the baby boomers. So we have got a lot of work to be done there. But I think the work you're doing, Mike, with seasoned men, as you call this encore, and I, we call the encore for very specific reasons, right, that we've got to help them with this. But in any event, I think it is a great work. And I think you're starting in the right place when you're talking about the seasoned men and what we've got to do to engage them. Well, I appreciate that. And so let me let me go back and ask you a couple of questions here. You, you your first issue was the, that you brought up was the fact that these these seasoned men feel disqualified because of struggles that they've seen, maybe some failures or, or perceived failures in their lives. And one of the things that I talk about with guys is there are wounded men and men with scars and wounded men are dangerous. A man who's wounded, who's, who's not brought his issues fully to the cross and seen God's sovereignty cover them with Christ's blood and redeem his mistakes, his errors, and and have a story to tell about it, a redemption story, man, if he hasn't done that, then he is wounded and he's dangerous. But a guy who has been to the cross with his issues and has brought them out into daylight, he's got some scars that are now valuable in the kingdom. As I talk to younger men, they're not interested in hearing about how you took a company from zero to $10 million a year and how you did all of this stuff. Man, they want to know Will I ever sleep through the night again? How will I recover from a, a moral lapse? How do I've claimed bankruptcy? How can you can a man make it through this and recover? I've lost a child in some way. How can I can I make it through this and recover? So how do you give me your perspective on wounded men and men with scars and how we bring them into this this mix? Wow, we could go for about the next three days, couldn't we, Mike? <laughs> Okay. All right. Let's start with this wounded versus scars. Love that analogy. Uh, use it. Remember this scars are like tattoos only with better stories. Okay. <laughs> I love that. I've never heard that. Oh yeah. Scars are like tattoos only with better stories. All right. So here's the deal. I go into the locker room and guys have got tats on. 
I got zippers, okay, on these shoulders. And they look at that. That has meaning. But here's the issue. You ready? Uh, and I do like that. Let's start with what was lacking with the older men. Okay, one of the things that I feel very strongly in, because it was a it was a significant time in my life, is the lack of the father's blessing and the lack of the affirmation of who they are and whose they are. Okay, so we go back to you can't teach what you don't know, can't lead, but you only reproduce what you are. Therefore, this uh, two weekends ago was 70 guys at a camp in California. And on Saturday morning, we had talked about the relationship with Christ Friday night. Now, remember this. So we're talking about all church guys. Seven of them came forward and made decisions for Christ. Okay, right. Starting with, really, a 13-year-old to a 70, early 70s, just younger than I am. That was the range. Okay. The following morning, we were talking about the issue of sonship. Right. And so we have pastor there and, you know, elders of front leaders and modeled the father's blessing. You and I've had this conversation with our own sons, and it's been very significant for both of us. And that, and I learned that very late in life. Okay. Yeah. But in any event, when the invitation was given to the men who have never known their father's blessing, who are still trying to earn and prove themselves worthy of something that God gave freely as an adopted son of the king, right? Seventy men there, 14 of them came forward. Wow. That's 20%. So when we're dealing in that and and the, the really the range of that, so I'm watching over the older men who've never felt they were accepted as sons. They don't know how to pass that on, Mike. So a lot of work has to be done in terms of these encore men, these seasoned men, for them to see themselves with God's eyes as sons of the king. They weren't familiar with that term. You probably use, when you go into a group of older men and you use that, a son of the king, and we've had conversations about the things that adds to our identity, but I say it took me a long time to figure out who I was and whose I was. To be able to say, I'm Chuck Stecker. I'm a blood-bought child of the living God who's been adopted by the king into the royal family as one of his very own sons. That's who I am. When I say that to a group of seasoned men, Mike, you just see them, some already go to tears because they can't say that. They don't know how to get there from here, right? And that's the response that you get. So we've got to help them first with their identity before we can position them to help a younger man with identity in that process. So what does that look like? How do we have that conversation and meet those guys how do I bring them to that point? How does the local church pastor who might be listening to this engage the seasoned men, the encore men in his congregation and bring them to this point so that the healing takes place and the revelation takes place so that they're ready to go to work? I think part of it is seeing and understanding this issue of identity and where it fits. So many of our churches, Mike, and this is where we can help pastors, okay, in a loving way, not telling them what to do, you know, and so forth, and the call on their life. But I spent several months with our pastor, and man, he got it. And so there's a Ralph Garborg wrote the book, The Family Blessing. There's resources that we use, and you see everybody, and it all stems from Smalley and Trent with the, you know, the blessing that was 35 years ago. But 
the family blessing in that. And so, for example, at our church, I watched our pastor speak on the power of the blessing and then offer that blessing and the entire church just came forward. And he was there. I was at the second service on that Sunday. And he said, you know, they couldn't even clear out the sanctuary from the first service with everybody, couples, men, everyone coming forward who had never known that blessing. And he took it upon himself as the pastor to do that. Now, part of what we've got to help is the ongoing process, how you incorporate that in to the full ministry of the church on a recurring basis, not just a one-time thing that's done every five years, right? But they've got to get it. They've got to see that. They've got to know the power of that blessing. And there's resources that you're doing. There's things that you're doing at the Iron Sharpens Iron, at your ongoing ministry, and the things like that that serve as entry points, gateways to come into that understanding of what's missing. Uh, My book came out, or our book, Men of Honor, Women of Virtue, in 2006, but the writing preparation, 2004, Dan, the same way, we saw the same thing. Whatever the percentage of people in the church was, sometimes 70 to 80% who had never known a Father's Blessing, it ran about the same on the staff. And I've done the Father's Blessing in churches where I've literally had pastors stop and say, stop. I can't do this because no one's ever done this for me. Well, wow. there's been a dozen pastors that have asked me as a, in a spiritual fathering way to say, stand over me and pray for me because I, I can't do this. I had a pastor stayed with his elders before the rites of passage and we're waiting to get started. He came out, told the congregation, I had to stay with the elders and tell them the truth. I had never received a father's blessing, only a father's blasting. And he stayed wow. with the elders his elders then came around and prayed a blessing over him, a spiritual blessing as a man and a and that as a son of the king. So we've got a lot of work to do, but you're asking the right questions and you're moving in the right direction, Mike. So if we've got these seasoned men that are missing this, it seems to me that we we've got to almost take them aside and invest in them. Is is that it? Or can we do this in a multi-generational way to have these sorts of conversations? How do we get them so that we can put the generations together and begin to have these conversations that are spanning the generations? I mean, we want to see Titus 2 taking place where the, the older men are investing in the younger men and we're, we're seeing the Paul and Timothy and Paul and Titus sorts of relationships. Is that a bridge too far right now or... Absolutely not. Absolutely not. And here's the thing. I think you do enough things and you do them very successfully. I mean, I had the privilege of being with you in Roanoke, right? And uh, interestingly enough, I had one of my mentors that I brought, as you recall, he's in heaven now, but he said the most powerful men's event he'd ever been to was that Iron Sharpens Iron and that, and we had, you know, some, so you, uh, you've got to look at the construct of what you're doing and present the opportunities. And here's, here's where you're very, I would say uniquely positioned for this, Mike, is you, you grasp this thing. I mean, I, I watched this, I've watched it with your sons going through and the work that you've done there with them and your family and, and completely your position to do this, you've got to take advantage of your events. And and frankly, I would tell you at some of these, maybe you have some older men that are in a position. I'm not looking for a job, although you know, and I know anytime you invite the answer is already yes. And I mean, it's, it's just true with you, but um, then you've got to position this to give that, but you can do this, Mike, you can do this. I watched my pastor who is uh, 30 years younger than I am. 
as he prayed over people that were much older than he is, who had no problem at all with a man who understood it and spoke it and they knew it was from God. And I think one of the things you need to look at with your leadership team, and you have those in each of the cities you've done that, you've raised up these core teams. I think you've got to do some work like that. And I would encourage you to, because I think it will have a profound impact on the team itself when you start with them, right? right. And I will just tell you, when you talk about the multi-generational, multi-generational for us is a gathering. The intergenerational is a culture that we're trying to where it brings about relationship. But at the Father's Blessing last week, Friday, Saturday before this, had a man come up afterwards with tears in his eyes. And his son, he became the stepfather and the son was just a baby. And he says, we've just had a tough, tough time. He said, I can't ever remember him calling me dad. He says, frankly, mm-hmm. I can't remember ever us hugging each other. And his son was there at this event, 21 years old. And the guy has got tears coming down face is soaked. And he said, Chuck, I just want you to know that my son went forward and received a father's blessing from one of the pastors Mm. back to me. And we held each other in our arms and he called me dad and I called him son. And we realized what the issue was. And so here's this ranges from guys that, you know, that 77 was the oldest down to well the young guy 13 intergenerational environments where men are together yeah well as we get into this uh, in some of the banter before we started recording you you were telling me about some of the things that the younger generation is hungry for yeah. and and so I want you to touch on that you've had some experiences just recently with some of the questions that folks are asking and the the help that they're looking for and so, guys, if you're out there listening to this, you may look around and say, well, no one needs anything from me. And I think that is absolutely a lie. Chuck's going to tell you some of what he's experiencing that people are looking for. They're hungry for some wisdom and some answers to questions that God has already given to you. We just we just have to put them in motion so that you can have uh, a time in to build relationship and invest in some younger folks. So give us some perspective on that, Chuck. Well, I want to I want to start off by saying this: the person who asks the best questions guides the conversation, not the one with the best answers. Now, mm-hmm. I, I say that for all of these seasoned men, as you would say, that are listening or whatever. It's not the answers that the young people are looking for; it's people that will ask them the guiding questions very often in this process. And, it, and a lot of times they come in, they say, "Tell me what to do," and the real question is, "What's God telling you?" And then all yeah. of a sudden. The sincerity of you asking that question and knowing you're sincere about it, that you want to know what's God telling you in this process? Where do you feel God's leading you in this process? What's the number one thing that if someone could help you, what would be that one thing that they would do for you? Right. And and I, again, I conversation earlier today and I said, you know, so often some of the things that I'm doing is not providing answers, but introducing them to people far better than I am in a specific area. And, I, and I'll give you an example, a guy that's older than I am. We were at a Panera and I was literally sitting with one of my spiritual sons there. This guy walks by and he knows us both. In fact, he's very active in this other guy's ministry. And I, I got a text later that day and then it followed with a quick phone call. And he said, when I saw you sitting with that guy, as clear as anything, God said, that's something you don't have in your life. And he said, will you meet with me? I said, absolutely. Well, in that case, I met with him for about six months and we walked through a process, some things there. And then I identified, he did, there were two things that just 
clearly in his mind. And by the way, one of those dealt with this interest of the men's ministry specific, and I guided him to Dan Schaefer. He met with Dan for almost two years there. But the other thing that simultaneous with that was he wanted ministry where his wife and him could work with younger couples and that, and that's exactly what they started doing. So a lot of times we're worried about, guys, how long is he going to want to do this and things of that nature? You know, when you make yourself available, yep. younger people know. And, and guys say, well, Chuck, I don't know what you mean. And I said, well, let me just tell you in love, you're an idiot because you do know what I mean. <laughs> I said, let me just give you an example. When you were single in every room you went to that had women there, did you have any problem at all conducting yourself in such a manner that they knew you were single and available? It was your body language. It was the way you looked at them. It was the smile. It was your eyes. And it was a conversation. You can put all that together. Did you ever have a problem? The guys would go, well, no, not really. And I said, then why is it so hard when you're in a group of young people to look at them, smile, to shake their hand, to introduce yourself, and you know there's an openness there? And that's just exactly what happens. I mean, to kind of give you perspective on this, was a young man that called me. He was in between flights, and I'd met him the, the week before, and he was going to his grandmother's funeral in Texas from California. And he said, man, I don't want to offend you. And he goes, man, he says, for your age? I don't see a lot of men that are as active in doing what you're doing with energy. And I go, they're out there. Believe me, they are. He goes, no, not around me. He says, I will tell you, the guys that are mid-70s around me that I see, they're sitting back. They're not doing much, trying to get them energized and stuff like that. And I said, well, you just got to bite them into the right setting. You've got to bring them into an area where they feel confident to be a part of that and open the door for them there. Okay. And they, and men will respond to that, Mike. Well, and, and so I want to sit with that and you just hit on something that I think is super important. And that is, I believe there are men out there probably in most every church who are doing something like what Chuck Stecker is doing. And like some other men that I've met recently, they have found the absolute delight of investing in younger men. I would love to encourage pastors, identify that guy, sit down with him, hear from him about what he's doing, hear his enthusiasm, and then figure out how to help him reproduce what he's doing in the lives of other men. If, if guys don't hear this story, if they don't catch a vision for it, then they can never go and take their own high ground, their own Caleb Mountain. So is that uh, a realistic challenge or encouragement to put in front of some folks here as we close, Chuck? I think you've nailed it. I'm going to go back to a conversation now that Dan Schaefer had, and part of what he was working on with older men was how to tell their story. And, and in some cases, they're just so hungry for guys to listen to them. So we've yeah. got to teach older men how to tell those stories. Part of what I tell men is that God wants his story to become part of your story so that your story will be part of his story. Stories are powerful. You know, I'm glad you said that about the short stories. There is some training that we have to do with guys on how to do this well. And one of the one of the little rules I will tell guys all the time is you need to listen rather than lecture. So I, I think one of the things we have to do is encourage some of these seasoned men, like you said earlier, to ask the right questions and then listen and have the discipline to hear someone else's story rather than give them your answer to where you think they're going. Mike, you've nailed it. And look, we do have a lot of opportunity for training and that opportunity, you know, to 
to do some workshops in a sense. How do you tell your story? What are the elements of your story? How do you make that story something? And then how do you stop and listen? Because what will happen is, is the younger person will take your story and begin guiding you to their path. Because mm -hmm. they'll take the element of your story, but they'll ask the questions that guide you to their path. And you've got to recognize that you've left your path and you're now on their path. Yeah, because that has to be the ultimate goal anyway, is to is to lock in with them. But Chuck, I think about the analogy of the baton. If you've given your baton away, take it back. Is there a better analogy or one that you recommend that fits here? Because analogies yeah. are so analogies powerful. are so important. Here, here's my answer to that, Mike. Find the analogy that works for you. So yeah. we can tell men. And what I what I see is, look, I've got a great friend. His wife passed away. And it was, guys, this was 15 years ago. And I'm speaking at a men's thing. And before we'd written the book or any of that, and I was speaking on this issue of the baton. I called him up and gave him the baton. I just saw him a couple of months ago. He said, Chuck, now he's in his 80s. And he says, Chuck, you need to understand that baton's still on my nightstand. I see it every morning <laughs> when I wake up. That baton tells me I'm still in the race and God's not done yeah. with me. So you, you find the analogy that works for you. You find yeah. what works for you. And, and I'm sure there are, Mike. And that's a great statement. I'm not offended by that. Like, you know, well, why don't you shift it over to here, Chuck? And I go, you know what? This works for me. And I've, I'm seeing guys respond. I'm seeing men yeah. and women respond. But if you've got a better analogy that works in your area and it helps you convey the message better, by golly, use it. But I said, boy, if I could steal a name and use that with, you know, with our encore and that, it'd be touch them all. You're the one generation that can touch them all from the young people being in the nursery. And I'm watching. I've got one church and said, man, here's when I work with this pastor. He says, you know, what we're doing we're putting, you know, like schools have room mothers. Right. That come yeah. in and just help. He says, we're putting in grandparents in each classroom and they have their cycle to go in and all they do is show up. They're yeah. the grandparents for that room because so many of the younger kids, their grandparents live in other parts of the, the country. They're going as the grandparents. So there's all kinds of things that you can do. But we're the generation that can touch them all. Wow. Well, Chuck, uh, we jumped into this without doing much of an introduction just because I love you so much. And I know you, but tell these folks how to get back in touch with you at, and uh, your website and that information. Our, our website's a chosen generation. Got to have the a out there. dot org. A chosen generation. dot org. And if they want to send something and say, "Hey Chuck, I'd like to follow up," it's Chuck at a chosen generation. dot org. And you know, I always tell people introductions are so highly overrated, Mike. So I was kind of glad you didn't go through that and waste our time. But you know, I just uh, I love being with you. My passion is helping churches, organizations develop a transformational intergenerational culture. How do we do it from A to Z, soup to nuts, from the kids, the younger ones coming up to the ones in the encore generation? Awesome. Well, we'll put all of that in the show notes as well. And, uh, folks, this brings us to the conclusion of the Nobleman podcast today. We'll be with another guest next week to continue talking about how do we mobilize men to mentor younger men and keep building the kingdom of God. We'll talk to you next week. Bye-bye. 